Hey, Dave Aiken here. Just before getting into this episode, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's been involved in the Busker Hall of Fame project to date. This ranges from the people who've contributed written articles, which, if you haven't read yet, you should really check out at the Busker Hall of Fame website, all of the people we've interviewed, the many folks who've conducted those interviews, everyone who's made suggestions for things we could improve and sent us links and info that we could share on our Facebook page, massive thanks to everyone who's donated financially in the last year or so since we started getting money thrown into our online hat, and special thanks to Lindsay Lindbergh and Magic Brian who put up with my emails and pestering more than anyone else. I also wanted to send out a very loud shout-out to a guy who's been a fan of the podcast from the early days. He's one of the two producers featured in episode 23, and he believes in this little radio show so much that in 2014, he, or rather the Lawrence Busker Festival, became the first-ever official sponsor of the podcast. I got to play at this festival last year on a particularly sweaty weekend in August, and was really impressed with the care and feeding that was given to all the performers who came in for the gig. So it gives me a great pleasure to welcome Richard Renner and the 8th Annual Lawrence Busker Festival back as a sponsor for this episode. Thanks, Richard. Your support for this project and your friendship mean a lot. Okay, let's get to it. I always still go out to the pier, you know, locally. Mm -hmm. And for me, even to make a couple hundred bucks, just to juggle, is still amazing. So Right, because you're doing something you really, really love. It's not that. It's just this ability to... that they're paying me for it. Right. You know, I assume that I love it, but the fact that I actually made my living as being a professional juggler for like over 30 years, to me, is just mind-boggling. Yeah. I was promised by my high school guidance counselor things wouldn't go this way. Yeah, what did he say? Like, <laughs> yeah. He said, by 22, you'll be broken homeless. And, right. you know, it was as if he had researched this. Right. And uh, I remember being 23 and going on the Tonight Show just thinking, God, I hope Mr. Pavlika's watching. I really hope he's watching. Right. And I hope he he's listening so to this podcast. <laughs> exactly. In hell! In hell! <laughs> Wishing someone roasting in hell. <laughs> Good night. We're here all week. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your guidance, sir. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm super excited about this episode, which features a great conversation that Mike Wood had with the Raspini brothers at the 2013 Edmonton International Street Performers Festival. The awesome factor for Mike when he sat down with Dan and Barry to record this conversation was huge, and although I could try to explain it for you, Mike does a far better job than I ever could. When I was nine years old, my babysitter let me stay up way past my bedtime to watch the Raspini brothers on The Tonight Show. At the time, I couldn't juggle, I didn't have any stated interest in variety performance, but somehow, Dawn from down the street, whom my parents trusted with my life while they were out at theater, thought I would enjoy the Raspinis. I stayed up late, ate lots of potato chips, and saw professional goofballs on television for grown-ups. It was great! Meeting Dan and Barry in Edmonton in 2013 was one of the highlights of my year. Hanging out and milking their brains for all their great stories from the pitch? Well... I don't want to oversell it, but imagine sitting in your pajamas, watching a guy walk on the moon, and then 25 years later, grabbing coffee with him. It was like that, but better. So here we are in the library. (laughs) Keep it down. (laughs) With Dan Holzman and uh, Barry Friedman. It's Holzman. Holzman. There's no T. Oh, I see. So a lot of people say Holzman. Holzman. Except people say library. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> instead of library. Why like, didn't say Holtzman? The X is silent in his name. It's H O L X Z. Yeah, X is silent. It's Holtzman. From a long line of Aztec Jews. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, really. We were selling uh, shmatas at the uh, the sacrifices. Get your shmata. Get your kanish. The legendary, legendary Raspini brothers. And I want to know where it started. We talked a little bit at lunch yesterday about you live in San Francisco, but the whole thing began in L.A. It began in the valley. In the valley. Which is a special part of L.A. You know, L.A. Right. is so big and broad. It's yeah, the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. It's a bowl of small cities connected by 7-Eleven stores. Yeah. <laughs> and like one major thoroughfare, Ventura Boulevard, that goes from where I was living, which was Sherman Oaks, to where Barry was living, which was Encino or the Bridge uh, of Encino? No, I think... You, know, you were near the Galleria when I first met yeah. you. Yeah. How did that happen? Did you... Well, we both learned juggling individually, yeah. so we didn't know each other then. He, we learned about a camp or something? Yeah, like I learned that? a camp when I was 15, and life was crappy. I mean, up till then, I had this one of these bad childhoods you read about with abuse and all that stuff. Yeah. And then at camp, someone taught hey, me how sir, to juggle. May I have some more, sir? <laughs> it was. It was at home. It was terrible. You know, it was just a bad situation that I don't need to go into here. But, um, yeah, and then at camp, someone taught me to juggle, and I was like, holy shit, this is unbelievable. Uh, and then I met you probably at around 17. Yeah, and I learned from a book. I learned with a book, a juggling book by Carlo came out in 1974. It was kind of like the first thing I saw that really was like, oh, juggling, you know. And that's so I learned to juggle. And then a couple of years later, we just happened to meet each other in a park. He was, he was juggling with uh, Mike Boyer and another guy. Who should be mentioned in the Busker Hall of Fame? Mike Boyer? Yeah. We had done this little show for the uh, camp, and it was like people were laughing and clapping, and I was like, oh, this is good. Right. This yeah. is my ticket out. This is my ticket out, and it has been. Right. Literally has been. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I first saw them at the Renaissance Fair. Like, uh, up in the air, juggling. Up in the air, juggling. Like, wide clown. No. We met you in a park, though. You rode your bike by. That was yeah. the first time we met you. Yeah, but you were yeah. with a bike, and then... Uh, he had a bike with a... It had, like, a bell and those swishers coming know. off the handlebars. <laughs> But you could see where I was in my life because I was like 17, 18, I was still riding my bike. Hey, yeah, great. I juggle. That's how these guys juggling in the park. And uh, they were juggling. I'm like, oh, juggling. Because I, I really didn't see many, many jugglers. I think maybe for the first five or six years. But then you were like, I like juggling. And then I think we started smoking a fatty. And I you're like, fatties. I like fatties. They had a thing where they had like a hitter. Like they could throw it around. They could pass it around. It was like a power hitter inside. It was yeah. inside of a plastic right. thing. And you squeezed it. And so they could like throw it around. Fantastic. It oh. great, I, whatever happened to those? It was a great invention. The power hitter, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you mounted the joint inside and screwed the lid shut, and then when you squeezed it, yeah. it pushed air through. But so it was like basically you, reverse smoking. But right. you, could, you could juggle, you could, you could toss it, you know? Yeah, sure. So it was a fun yeah. meeting, but then we really didn't get together again until at Fargo, the first Fargo, which was 1980. Yeah. I drove up with John Luker and Mike Boyer, and you, right. you came up separately. With Olaf Sundberg. But yeah, because you were like hitchhiking across the states or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what's his name? Mr. Simpson. Yeah, Mr. Simpson, who loves Simber. Yeah. So that's when we all started really hanging out together right. and having little adventures. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, me and Mike got arrested in uh, Fargo. <laughs> you know what I got arrested for? Jumping over the velvet rope. little rope at a restaurant. Because Mike had mooned them. <laughs> and and I had, all I did was jump over the little rope. Like, you two. Right. The mooner and the yeah. guy who jumped and over the rope. And his accessory to mooning. Well, the power of the velvet rope throughout history, is, it keeps lines together. Did they, even have, did they even put like, handcuffs on us? Anything? Yeah. They handcuffed us together. And we, like, we were juggling. They were them. juggling with their outside arms while they were handcuffed in the center. And literally, I think it was like a $50 fine. Or right. I'm like, I jumped over the rope. That was just early. But you've never jumped over a velvet rope since. Oh, God, no. I no. Not, not because it's wrong. I can't. <laughs> you just can't anymore. My jumping ability has, has yeah. diminished over Well, the that year. proves that the, yeah, the fine is an effective deterrent. Yeah, the $50 is. Yeah. yeah. At the time, it was actually sure. it wasn't yeah. a deterrent. Because <laughs> I was flipping burgers. 
Right. I was working as a, a hamburger flipper in, at a place yeah. called Raldo's. So that's the kind of place where we really started hanging out more. In Fargo in 1980. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's an IJA, like one of the first ones, right? I no, no. Actually, it goes, that was our, my first Yeah, one. that was our first 1980. But it goes back into the... I mean, well, there's a, there's a picture that all the founding fathers, and it's probably in the 30s. Yeah. But I'm sure the first conventions were like 12 guys. and uh, By the time we went, it was fairly established. Well, the early pictures of IJ's guys, you know, for the oh, yeah. picture, they're wearing suits and ties and the women are in dresses. Yeah, and, they're all juggling right. in suits and ties. Oh, my God. Now, so you know, guys are passing power hitters around. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> really gone to hell. Yeah. 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 And there was one time we were walking around the convention smoking cigars. Remember? Because we were all like... We were on mushrooms. Mushrooms. <laughs> we were walking around smoking cigars. And this... Of course, now we, we don't recommend this to the kids. Of course not. No. But it was a very uh, developmental time for us. Yeah. So he would work Renaissance fairs, which I would sort of be on the fringes of, but I wasn't doing a show or anything, but I could watch those guys maybe hang out in the juggling. Uh, the tent. Yeah. The tent where they taught juggling. And he got an opportunity to go to Chicago, which I don't know how that came about, really. Cliff and Mary. Oh. Cliff and Mary said, oh, there's a Renaissance fair in Chicago you guys should go do. And we were like, oh, that'd be fun. But then Mike didn't want to travel. We were only like 18, 18. 19. Yeah, pretty under twenty. Yeah, so Dan and I went. Yeah, yeah. So he said, "Right." So you were for a minute there. You were kind of the replacement partner. Barry's it was only supposed partner. to be for the one. It wasn't yeah. supposed to be like oh, I'm going to dump this guy. Yeah, and I want to take his place. He was more like, "Hey, he doesn't want to go. Do you want to go?" I'm like, "Yeah," because there was I wasn't leaving much behind at that point. Yeah, right. No, so, neither of us. Well, and we had illustrious junior college careers. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, yeah, I studied uh, mime and piano for a second. Uh, well, the first, the first year I went to junior college, I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I took chemistry and French, I'm going to get a degree. Second year, I'm like, badminton. Yeah, I, just, right. I realized that wasn't, not, that wasn't the track for me. Right, got it. Badminton, mime, piano, and whatever would look fun. And how did you go from Barry's 15 and learning to juggle to Barry is now performing at Renaissance fairs? Like, how okay. did you skip the birthday party phase, I guess is the big question. Mike and I did a couple of birthday parties, right, okay. not very many, right. uh, as clowns. And yeah, then it was, that's a good leap. You know, it was just, we did some birthday parties. What else did we do? Me and Mike, I guess we did a thing at Valley College. Valley College. You know, we did like little piddly stuff would come up. But the Renaissance Fair was a good entry point. You didn't have major stages or anything, but you know, you would be on the path and gather 30 people around and figure out what worked. We were just doing jokes from other people that we didn't even know why they were funny. Sure. It was was terrible. Well, everybody starts as a cover artist. And we drove across to the, to Chicago. I thought, well, he has all this material. But then I realized, oh, it's not exactly his material. No, uh, yeah. I don't know what it was. Yeah, it, was we were... it was like, I think, some fly-by-night, some... But that was a lot of uh, original thing. But they had stuff that I, I didn't want to do, even if you know, it was original, but it was like, I, he did like a two-man high. Mm. And the first time we started crawling on each other, it, just, it just wasn't... Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't uh, what we were going to do. So we ended up doing some of the stuff you did. Right. And Dan had this very exaggerated voice, and it was so much better than anything I'd ever done with uh, this other act. You know, it was just all of a sudden it was like people were gathering around. It was fun, but uh, I had no performing experience, really, really. And I came from drama. I had a drama yeah. background. So the Shakespearean, Elizabethan kind of, lords and ladies, right. gather round, oh, Barry. Right. That's where, that's where the whole exaggerated voice sort of started, because we started in the Renaissance fairs. I used to have a lot more of an accent, though. Right. You know, a lot more like, it was Barry, or whatever. Yeah, it was I really thick. Yep. So I was more from that background. He was just more from a, a regular guy background. And you say you had a drama background. What do you mean by that? You- I went to drama camp for two summers. I got a USC extension, so it was a pretty serious deal. I did a lot of speech tournaments. I was always interested in like uh, you know Woody Allen and comedy albums and theater. And I did, even did a little movie when I was 11. 
you know, so I was sort of a child actor. Right. Did kids, kids theater. Right. What's the movie called? Can we it's all called, find it's it? It's Alive. It's, it's a cult classic. It right. is a cult classic. A woman has a baby, but the baby comes out with fangs and is totally mutated. Right. Because of whatever reasons people sure, are yeah. mutated. And it escapes into the alleys and gutters. And there's like POV visions of the baby crawling his point of view, like from the gutter. Very, uh, it was advanced for its time. Quite. And were you like I victim number brother. three? Oh, the Yeah. <laughs> the one time I. Long suffering older brother. <laughs> no, I remember one scene I was just going, Are you my brother? He like downstairs, I was in the basement. And I was like hiding the baby or something. And I was running. Fun. So that was like my, my, my first experience, yeah. So uh, I brought a lot more yeah. of that to the. And so then. You go to Chicago. You have this amazing experience where you totally unlock. It was gritty. This this we thing remember, that you have. I still remember the first night. We you know where we slept on the floor of the steak pita booth. <laughs> Woke up covered with flies. Like, yeah. Welcome to showbiz. Yeah. Welcome to showbiz. <laughs> and literally, because we got to the fair too late. Everything was closed. We didn't have yeah, yeah. money probably for a hotel. We had no money. We were so broke. <laughs> and then we get there. And we so we go to the guy. We were so broke. And his name was uh, John Mills. And we always remember what he said to us. He said his famous words were. Yep. We don't need you here. You can be here. We'll let you perform. But just remember, always, we don't need you. So, you know, anything happens, anything goes wrong, out the door. Because yeah, right. we kind of just showed up, I think. Maybe Cliff and Mary said we were coming. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it, was, maybe. it was that random that maybe they didn't even know we were coming. We had to pay a mission every day. Yeah. No. <laughs> but we had no place to stay. We ended up staying in some guy's basement. Oh, that was so weird. Yeah, and there was one night where... It's kind of, kind of a wild party going Yeah, on. but it turned out like these three guys were like, you're going to have to leave the basement now. We need some private time. <laughs> and we're like, wow, we did not see that coming. <laughs> and one of the guys was with the pirate. No, what was that one guy? Yeah, it was like the captain. The, the captain. Yeah, the captain. And it was like, oh, God, the yeah. captain gets his way. And I remember him saying, I have a four-octave singing voice or something like that. Right. And maybe he was demonstrating that. Like, we heard the high note in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. It was impressive. So, yeah, I was like, uh, guys, we need the basement. <laughs> So I think we were out in the hallway or something going, what's going on in there? Didn't you juggle down there one time? And I broke it, the thing. Yeah, the fluorescent tubes, like those six-foot tubes. Oh, God. Man, it was just like... Those yeah. make a huge noise when they blow. It did. It was I heard. Like back crosses yeah. and it just, it just blew out entirely. Yeah. And he was cool because, you know, he didn't charge us much or whatever. And from the first show, we thought, we'll be able to do this. Because literally, right. if we had not made any money in that first couple of days, we probably would have had to go, we got no money. We'll have to just somehow get home or... Yeah. 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 But it was good. Very first show. Duh. Things started clicking. Except another one of the performers said, what you got to do is pass the hat before the last trick because people here will leave. Right. So for the first show, we did that. But then we realized he was a wire walker and he would walk up this inclined rope and it took him a couple of minutes to get down. Right. So for him, it made sense. But we, we, we quickly said, well, that doesn't make sense for us. Yeah, that's not a good busking philosophy, I think. But some people give you advice based on their situation. And yeah. So he wasn't trying to mislead us. He was just basing on his situation, sure. which wasn't the same as ours. Sure. So you do that festival, which I assume was a couple of weeks. Six weekends. Six weeks, and then we oh, went right. right to Minnesota Festival. Because mm-hmm. there's like a little circuit, and we would just follow the circuit. And once again, I don't know if they, they knew we were coming, or... We must have called it, or maybe Cliff and Mary helped us. Something. So it was Minnesota and then Texas. So we didn't get back for like 18 weeks, which by my math calculations is about three years. Right. So, so that's, I think metric. that's correct. Yes. Because we're doing this in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> And then I thought, well, that was fun. That was a lark. It was fun. And he and his partner got back together. Right. And they went to New Orleans. Remember? Right. Oh, like exactly. Mardi Gras. We went to go play at Mardi Gras. And it, right. it turned out that he didn't want to work. He had money. He came from a better home than I did. Let me put it that way. Sure. And uh, it wasn't mandatory that he needed money. And there was a lot of drinking and hanging out. And I was like, man, I need to work so badly. And I'm a worker. We always say, if the money's there and we're there, let's leave together. Yeah. Yeah. 
know. That was our early philosophy. Clearly, early that's not the case with no, this No, no. Now we, now, we, now we don't mind leaving a lot at the table. But before it was like, you know, you're only working two days a week. Those are your days. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah we would do 20 shows. We would do our 10 record days. Was a 21 in two days, yeah. But that was at a Dickens Festival in yeah. Galveston. But Texas. the Renaissance, we'd do seven, eight. Yeah, easy. Seven, eight a day. Jeez. And, and is that the beginning of the Renaissance Fair thing? No, it had started maybe like in L.A., like in the 70s. Yeah, right. But I think this is the start of it being sort of spread out. Right. Uh, there was acts who had been famous there, Puke and Snob, yeah. and Singing Executioners, guys like that had been... So I'm not sure exactly the history of it, but it definitely was well established by the time. Sure. Yeah. And it had big stages. Like in Texas, some of the, the stages... I we think. didn't get those the first year. We no, were on paths. The first year we were by the crane. You go, we are, we are, here we have your own area. Like, oh, yeah, Texas. Your own area. Yeah. When we got to Texas. Yeah. And we're here on like, the other side of the wall. You're going to be by the crane. <laughs> yeah, right. You go out by the crane, it's this empty field with like this sort of derricky, craney. Right, know, a Renaissance old crane. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but oh, we, that's our spot. Yeah. But we figured out because there was a certain time where something would break here and there would be you know, a flow coming down the path. Yeah, but it was brutal. Yeah. There was just no shade, no benches. So we had to kind of create our own little, mm-hmm. you know, which is good because you really have to figure out how to hold the people. That tightens up your transitions. Oh, and, yes. God. Yeah, I'm we going to do this, but first. Whatever it is. Because yeah. we didn't have the luxury of being like, sit on the seats and be comfortable. Oh. It literally was, we got to grab these people and form them because they could easily go from here to there without mm-hmm. stopping here. Right. And we, we would just crank them out. But I remember one show, I was so delirious. We were in the sun. It was like for six people. And we were passing knives around a guy. I drop one. I try to fill in with a double from the left. I was yeah. so, you know, <laughs> and it's not a good idea to, when you're passing around. Oh, slamming. Oh, to have my head in the shoulder. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God, I remember There's that. only six people watching. Yeah. And we're like, okay, I guess that's the end of the show. Yeah. Well, six people is enough for a court case. Whatever. <laughs> you know, we, were using, we were using those heavy, dull machetes. Sure. Because you just hit me. I'm like, yeah, man, sorry. Yeah, I'm just, look, you're like, bleeding everywhere. Yeah, yeah. there's nothing. <laughs> like, oh, I almost put a stain on your shirt or something. Yeah. But it was so delirious out in the sun. I was like, I need a break. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And good times. You said you, you ditched the too high stack that right. yeah, I and yeah. Mike were doing. They had some good lines. Um, but I think they were from a, a Vegas. They were probably from yeah. some other show. What are you doing back there? Right. I'm shining my shoe. Because he had his foot stuck in this guy's crack of his ass. It was yeah, yeah. trying to get up. Of course. Yeah. It was, they had a good act. It was fun. But yeah. when did you guys start doing some of these more signature things? Well, I think they kind of started even that first time on the way to yeah. Chicago, just figuring what we were going to do when we got there. And you know, I brought some skills. I was a really good three ball juggler. So I remember I did a three ball routine. And I had torches. I remember we yeah. did that. And did I do a four torch routine? I think I even did that back maybe. in the day. Sometimes we were like clapping for 15, 20 minutes or something. It was crazy. Audience. Just all turned sideways to the audience, ruling them out. Right. But we realized at a certain point that by facing each other and not turning towards the audience, we weren't making that connection. We weren't. Right. So we tried to fill up in a lot more stuff where it was like, most of the formula was like Barry juggling and me commenting on Making it. Making fun of me. Yeah. A couple of weeks back, Dan and I are performing in Las Vegas. The Moscow Circus was in town. They say, hey guys, come do a special guest performance with us. They taught me a special trick for that show. Watch this. One up, pirouette. Ooh. <laughs> Just like a Russian. <laughs> Two up, pirouette. Just like a Russian. Three up pirouette. Wait, wait. (laughs) Just like an American. So that seemed to be a very stable direction we went in. I think we did a knife pass around. But one thing, like, when we did the knife pass around, and this is sort of something that also has... has, uh, 
sort of formulated our style, is that we were going to do another Renaissance fair, and we thought, oh, this other act is doing a knife pass around. So it's like, hey, if we're doing a knife pass around and they're doing a knife pass around, if people watch us and people watch them, we wanted them to think, these guys are better. So we were doing a trick where we were passing seven clubs with a ball spinning on a mouse stick yeah. and a ring on our ankle. Yep. So I, I think it was probably my idea at the time. Oh, we did that with seven clubs? Yeah. Wow. So I said, why don't we take That's that hard. and do that with the pass around? That way, people are like, oh, obviously, that's better. Yeah. Of course, they get there, and they're not doing a pass around. But that was one of the yeah. first sort of signature. And then we ended up doing that on Carson. Yeah, yeah. that was just Which is say, amazing. Yeah, that's, that's the one I watched when I was that nine was years the, old. But that wow. was the impetus yeah. of that was purely to be better than the other act that was coming. Right. That wasn't their finale anymore. They had some other finale. Mm. Right. So it was advantageous because we created this routine. Sure. And had we not thought that they were going to do it, maybe we wouldn't have needed to figure out a way to make it better. Sure. Well, looking at your show now, I mean, you guys are obviously well beyond that juggler disease where as soon as you know how to juggle any three items, you're like, that's a new routine. Three oranges, or I'm going to do three shovels. I'm going to do three something. Yeah, I can juggle, therefore. Yeah, the three anythings is a show. But you guys have this like, okay, let's do five torches and a ball. Oh, the five clubs and a ball? Or, or yeah. let's... Yeah, we never do it with five torches. Well, what that would be kind of cool. Pleasure to be here tonight. We're going to jump right into the action. Watch this. One of our favorite types of juggling, six club passing. Wait, something is different. Good Lord, something's changed. Oh, what could it be? We're talking like geeks. No, stop. Of course, now we're juggling five clubs and a ball. Five clubs and a ball. Five clubs and a ball. Apparently, we're a little more excited about this than anyone else in the room. Jeez. No, that's all right. If we go back a little bit in the history, so we did the Renaissance fairs for a few years, and then we get and back was, to that was your bread and butter the whole time. Yeah, but we only did it in the summers. Like the first few years, we were just a summer act. We didn't go full time. We'd right. go back to junior. Well, we would go from like Chicago through Dickens, which was the Christmas time. Yeah. So, so by the end yeah, of the year, we were done. Half and the next year, year we'd get it. We'd basically do school, or, or I had a series of uh, supermarkets. Uh, yeah, ridiculous jobs. Uh, my last job was I was a file clerk at a hospital, right. and I would go up to this room where they had all these X-rays. And I'd go up there by myself. And if the x-ray was before a certain year, I'd throw it away. Unless the person was a minor. If they were a minor, I'd keep it. But before a certain year, they used silver nitrate. So they were, had some value. So I'd spend all day just sort of stacking minor nitrate. And you got two weeks away. off that job to come here, which is kind of neat. I'm still doing it. Yeah. It's, it's good stability. Right. <laughs> and it was a five bucks, you know, just straight $5 an hour. Yeah. And then one weekend, we did LA Renaissance. And I think I made like $800. So I'm going, huh, $5 an hour, $800. You know, so... Yeah. That was my last mm-hmm. real job. And what was your last real job? I drove a forklift, and I was terrible at it. I used to always drop pallets from a pod, but they <laughs> let me keep doing it. It was so weird. Yeah, I think that was pretty much my only job I've ever had. It was this little high school job. My dad's friend owned some company, and he said, oh, yeah, Barry can drive our forklift. Was, yeah. No problem. We won't even bother teaching him. It was terrible. <laughs> I think I got rudimentary instruction, but it wasn't good enough. Right. Here's the go pedal and the stop pedal. Right. And, it <laughs> up and it tilts and it, it was crazy. I was, I was watching it work more amazed at the technology of the forklift. I go, oh, shoot, there it goes again. <laughs> it was boxes of electronic components. We did the Renaissance for like three years, like three solid, we did that same tour, like three solid. Yeah, we did 82, 83, 84, 85, and so then in 86 we got on the Tonight Show. Yeah, so what happened the last year in Texas, a Renaissance Fair is dirt and straw, basically. Yeah. And it rained like crazy oh that God. year. We were, and we were just sitting there one time, looking at, the, surveying our 
what we've created for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it's stinky, and we're going. We gotta go inside. We gotta stop doing this, and that's when we made the transition to go. Okay, we need to change out of this field, and we decided to do it full time, but try to get indoors and try to do it, you know, more as a real thing at that point. Because mm-hmm. so, at first it wasn't really a real thing. I think until maybe three or four years in. Yeah, we were just like, well, let's do this again. You know, we. Yeah, but then at that point, I think we sort of made a commitment, like. Okay, we're going we're to keep doing this. Oh, yeah, standing there and sitting there in the rain. I remember that day very yeah, well. Me too. We were sitting by these like, bells. It was hideous. We're, we're going to keep doing this, but we have to figure out how to not do this. Right. And so we came back to L.A. and uh, started doing some local. Yeah. But by then, the characters and everything was pretty established. Oh, yeah. In 85, we had great shows. I mean, we had yeah. big Renaissance Fair shows, and we were on the big stages. And Yeah. So by the time we were seen... We were doing a show called Hats Off at the Variety Arts. It was a show of street performers. Variety Arts. And they decided, oh, let's make a show where all the street performers are on the stage. And we called Hats Off. And Owned by the brother of Milt Larson, who owns the Magic Castle. Yeah. Bill Larson? Bill Larson, yeah. yeah. And we've heard a lot of uh, conflicting stories about how we actually got on The Tonight Show. Remember the Mac and Jamie? Mm-hmm. So we recommended you guys. And, and then uh, oh, they said that. Oh. And then, But the guy we hooked up with, his name was Joe Gunches. Uh, he had an ad in the Dramalog magazine to get actual cruise ships and we were playing this place and he goes well, I'll come out and see you guys he came out and saw us and he said I can get Jim McCauley who at the time was the talent booker for the Tonight Show to come see you he was the name every comedian wanted to hear yeah. that was right. the only name we cared about but I think the thing was also is that Milt and Bill Larson were friends with Freddie DeCorbida who was the producer of the Tonight Show so they wanted to get something from that show to promote anyways and so it was very advantageous to be in that show at that time for those people yeah and when Jim McCauley came, we didn't even know he was there because he goes, "Where's he going to come?" And we're like, "Yeah, sure." We do the show, and we, we don't see anybody. We don't. And but he did come. Yeah, and yeah. Joe Gunchy says, "Wow, Jim loved you." And we met with Jim and worked out the set. And he goes, "You're going to be on the show in like a couple of weeks." It was amazing. And he was smart because yep. we had done something and we had cut it out for the spot. And he goes, "Didn't you guys do something that blah blah blah?" Like with a because we wanted basically to come out and go, let's bring over Johnny Carson. He mm-hmm. goes, no, no, you got to establish yourself with a routine first, then bring over Carson. Mm-hmm. So we were doing this apple and carrot routine. He goes, you know, do that first, and then bring him over. So right. he wasn't just a stiff. He actually sort of helped us. Right. He was a good eye for talent. Sure. But, I mean, that bit is like eight and a half minutes long. Yes. On, like, oh, that's what you used to be able to do, right. I mean, we that, did back-to-back, too, because I remember yeah, my suspender fell off my arm. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. Had, we did uh, And you start Apple with the carrot. torches, and then... No, no, that was the second, second The first one, we did apple and carrot. Right. And the, the one of the funny moments was I, I pretended to wipe my face off on the curtain. <laughs> the famous Tonight Show curtain. Just, <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking over, like, ah. Oh. And I remember thinking, oh, I did that pretty good. You know, and I looked over, and I got a big laugh, you know. And then we brought him over to throw a club in. And then we did seven back-to-back. Right. But he had never watched suspenders before. Because I don't know suspenders for the show. We've never done before. Right. If you watch the show, it starts to come off on his arm. He's trying to shrug it, shrug it back on his am. arm. And then we did seven back-to-back, and it kind of wiped out because that suspender was totally on my arm. And I think I had a bad problem of over-flipping. Like with the seven back-to-back, is I mm-hmm. would tend to get stiff, and I'd start to over-flip. And if you watch it, he catches the last one. And this is probably a really important throw in the history of the Raspini Brothers. Because we missed the first time. From the suspender, suspender or whatever it was. The second time, I'm starting to overflip. You know? I'm feeling it. He catches the last one upside down. Like bulb catch. Bulb catch. Yeah, bulb yeah. But had we not caught it, let's say we had dropped twice and had to do it a third time, and let's say we had missed that third time, yeah. it just would have been over. There would be no Raspini Brothers. <laughs> wow, amazing. I would think yeah. so. Yeah. You don't see epic fails like that on TV. It would have been an epic fail. 
Right. But instead, he caught it on the second try, and we ended strong. We had a couple of drops, but they were really happy with us. They were yeah. like, oh, that was great. We'll have you back on, blah, blah, blah. So that one throw, I always look back and go, that could have changed the whole... Mm, the whole If he had not caught that, and we had just gagged, yeah. it would have been a whole different oh, story. And is that... I mean, first of all, it's amazing that you can get eight minutes of variety of on television. Yeah. Now you have to come on as a skit or as a, yeah. is this impressed Ed Asner? Is this, is this something? Or Yeah, yeah. curtains open. Yeah. 15 seconds, curtains closed. Yeah, but back yeah. then you actually could do, like you were with your Lance Burton or Michael Davis or whatever. You're right. Here's, this is our spot. Mm-hmm. And both times we interacted with Johnny. We were, we were the first guests out, even. Yeah, Johnny did his monologue, they went to commercial, and then... So nine-year-olds around the world could watch. Exactly. Yeah. So people awesome. Sitting, yeah. That would be yeah. So you must have seen the second one, which was the... Yeah. He did a, he did a torch routine. He did the torch routine. And then we did the passer. And then the passer. That catch up to my chin on the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I still get nervous when I think yeah, about that. Yeah, that was even a ballsy been, moment to try that trick. Yeah. He's doing a four torch, triple singles. He's yeah. doing an immediate place on the chin balance. Yeah, yeah. And we had one phony drop. Missed on purpose once. Yeah. And I'd be yeah. like, I'm not hurt. You know, yeah. like and he had his little gl- martini glass. Yeah. That was like, so funny. Yeah. 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 And, like, that's the and I kind of be very fastidious about my, my drink. your drink. Oh, yeah. oh, I'm busy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm all right. And at the time, it was also that week, we were actually at the juggling convention. Yeah. I think it was in San Jose or something. We watched it at the juggling convention with other jugglers. Right. Which was kind of a fun experience. And somehow we've managed to skip where Raspini Brothers comes from. I think there was well, a juggler, Eduardo yeah. Raspini. I've always been a big historian. I think a lot of people neglect the history of juggling. You know, so I was always interested in the history of it. And there was a juggler named... But before I, we came across him, we used to say raspy a lot. Yep. That was an expression raspy from that time in the 80s. Like, oh, that juggler's raspy, or that trick is raspy. Right. Or this, you know, whatever. Right. Sure. And so when I came across the name Raspini, even though it was spelled R-A-S-P-I-N-I, yeah. and that was the original spelling we used as well, it was like, oh man, he must have been the raspiest of the jugglers. Right, of course. So with that, with that, that sounds kind of renaissance Yeah, yeah. Must be the Raspini brothers. Right. So yeah, so I, I get credit for and that. And then soon we changed it to a Y. Yeah, because then we thought, well, let's, let's, because also I was a, a big fan of Houdini. Mm-hmm. We got his name from Houdin, but then, then changed it subtly to make it Houdini. Right. So like, well, let's just change it, you know, to it's our own. With the Y. Of course. And this is way pre Google, so now it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. You know, for a Google alert, it's the only thing that comes up for Raspini. Sure. Yeah. We're not sharing the word. So you had to actually do that research uh, in a real book. There was a book called yeah. uh, 4,000 Years of Juggling right. that came out around that time by Karl Heinz Ethan. It was a two volume, which I've lost somehow. I don't know. I don't know where it went to. I think I lent it to someone never got it. I have back. two sets of that book. See, right. there you no. go. Now <laughs> <you're>... <laughs> it was kind of a weird book. The guy who wrote it was German and he kind of had these weird translations of. And I always like Cinco Valley. Cinco Valley was one of my favorites. Cinco Valley did all these odd tricks. And some of the tricks I do even now were takeoffs on some yeah. Cinco Valley tricks. Like he did right. a trick with a blowgun, which was described as he would juggle a turnip, a fork, and a knife with one hand. He'd hold a blowgun with the other hand. He'd throw up the turnip, shoot it with the blowgun. He would meet the fork somehow, and then he'd catch it on the knife. So he'd like throw the fork into it, shoot it with the blowgun, and catch it on the knife. Wow. And I go, I'm going to do that. And quickly I thought, <laughs> I think they, you know. They embellished. Embellished. Yeah. yeah. So it became a, a cabbage and a, a battle axe and a blowgun. Yeah. So I did get some stuff from this historical research, especially the name. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. So then you, you appear on The Tonight Show twice or whatever. And yeah. We did once and then six weeks later we got to do it again. Right. Was it that early? Was that quick? Yeah, it was six weeks. Oh, so it was like March 23rd and then July. Yeah, so maybe three And we were supposed to be on again because we had another spot planned. And we went into for Jimmy Collin. He goes, oh, that's great. I couldn't be happier. 
But someone upper squashed it up at a higher level. Right. I remember Jim McCauley saying, oh, that'd be great, this yeah, third yeah. spot. Yeah. We had a big spot plan. Oh, it was the Firestar? Yeah. Rastelli did this trick. It was his poster. It says non plus ultra, which I guess is no one better, nothing yeah. better. And he's laying on this star with like fire on every point of the star. He's spinning a big fire star on his foot. You got a fire hoop on his leg. Right. You got a mouth stick with fire, and he's having fire over his head. Right. So it had like eighteen Eight. points of fire. Mm. We do like a ping pong ball routine, and then end with that. Right. And we went in, and we had some good jokes, and it was a big. God, there's such a video of that. I'd love to see that somewhere. Oh, epic fail falling. of that being set up. My yeah. God, it's just going so wrong. Yeah, get it off my leg. I mean, <laughs> You're right. It's pretty. Uh, yeah, this was, guy runs in and fully slides out yeah. like the old cartoon banana slide. And, <laughs> he's on the grass and somebody get the stick and he comes and he just his legs fly. There's just me just dying and laughing yeah. on the side of the video. So that was our, supposed to be our third spot because yeah. we wanted to every spot to sort of up it. And this was going to be like a big monster. But somewhere up on the higher chain, yeah. someone. Well, like at network level, or no, just some other producer or some whoever. Right. We got Bing. Uh, whoever's above Jim McCauley. Right. Just said, you know, I think what's you know. They'll have a fine career without a third yeah, spot. Yeah yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that first one was seen by Billy Crystal because yeah. I remember like two Where days later been, we yeah. got our first real. I mean, the Renaissance Fair we were in tights like only months earlier. Yeah. So it was really a lot to have happen at yeah. once. But Sands Atlantic City. Yeah, but Billy Crystal was watching that. Ended up asking us to open them for two weeks or something. It was a long contract. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was over a week because I know how much we got paid, actually. We got like 10 grand or something. 10 grand for yeah. the week. And here's a couple of guys, you know. It's our first gig. Sands and Lake City. Beautiful stage. They put us up on this floor that was like the executive floor. Yeah. Right. So every morning you'd walk in and there'd be all the papers spread out. Locks and bagels. And in the afternoon they'd have soft-shelled crab and... Jungle we shrimps. Coming, yeah, coming right off Renaissance fairs, and, and it was like, right. oh, it was man. great. But it was the, the old thing of where a guy sees you on TV and calls. And yeah. So we ended up opening for him over the course of six years, different private dates, theaters, yeah. this, that, and then his buddy with Robin Williams. So I think they had the same management. Yeah, same management. Yeah. So, they, so at the same time, we were just like those two guys. And he in had standby uh, opening act. Robin Williams had Bobby McFerrin was mm-hmm. his opening act, and he had some show where Bobby McFerrin basically got booed off the stage. This was before he was. Don't worry, be happy, Bobby McFerrin. Yep. He was just some guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, weird beatboxing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that when we first opened for Rob Williams, the management said, look, if you guys can get through 10 or 15 minutes. Huge, yeah. Before they start chanting, Robin, Robin, or whatever, that's fine. You know, just do your best. They weren't expecting too much from us. Right. But we went out and did oh. our whole thing, and we could hear Robin backstage laughing. Cracking up. Cracking yeah. up. That was the best sound ever to yeah. hear him backstage right in the wings just cracking what a good guy he would actually introduce us he was a good good dude he would open his show sometime I remember one time he came out you know it's just ovation when he comes out and he doesn't say anything he's looking shoots ping pong balls out of his mouth yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly yeah Yeah, he would just really be into doing he liked this it was was fun yeah so that lasted a bunch of years probably I think like 86 through probably early 90s very sporadic yeah Yeah. theater tour here a week here a college thing here right we learned something good from him in that we ended up working with maybe 30 or, uh, of the top comics because we became known as an act that was funny but not topical and could warm them up, et cetera, et cetera. But what was good about watching him was what you noticed was he had this library of material that he could shift around. So if someone said something, he could go to a prearranged chunk but make it appear as if it was off the top of his head. Right. It was almost a, a sort of improvisational magic trick. Mm-hmm. Which we've sort of, we always say, let's, if we're going to improv, let's discuss what we're going to say first. Yeah, let's really get it down. Yeah, let's yeah. find that improv out first. So it was this ability to sort of, he could end with something one day, start with it the next day. Seamlessly. It, yeah, but it made him seem so quick. But, you know, a good percentage of it was these pre 
but that was a really great skill to see. I watched every single show we ever opened for him. I was powerless to ever just go up to yeah. the dressing room. We would sit there on the side and study. And yeah, a lot of guys we didn't watch, but him, or a lot of guys were so much the same. Like Dennis Miller, it was so much the same every night. Right. You only needed to see it once. You could set your clock. By yeah. It. It, was, yeah. He had, it was so weird because he had so much material from his show, but he had his live show, and he was like, "That's as much effort as I'm going to put into this." So well past the Tanya Harding incident, yeah. he was doing Tanya Harding jokes. Exactly. Years past. Uh, yeah. But that, he goes, this is my... This, this is my casino set. My, my casino set. And it never changed our entire time we we worked with him. He had all these writers. and But that was for his show, and this was his set. And yeah. So him, we watch once. And, yeah. yeah. And then you go eat shrimp. Yeah. By that time, we had shrimp room. in our dressing room. Yeah. yeah we had our own dressing room full of shrimp. And one time he came into our dressing room, there was something on TV that intrigued him. He's talking to us for a couple of minutes, and this light goes off in his head like... What am I doing in these guys' dressing room? <laughs> he didn't why say it out loud, but we spent time with them. We, we clearly saw it happen. He was even. like, "Wait a minute, why? Am I, what am I doing?" <laughs> but you know, he wasn't good to us, and he certainly was professionally right. friendly. We have a picture with the three of us, and he's holding like two bottles of Avion and, and a banana. banana. He's ready. He's ready to go to his room. Yeah, he's like, hey, "Can we get a picture?" Okay, yeah, Spinies. Okay, sure. Spinies. Yeah. We tried also to be like Zalik, you know, Zalik, the Woody Allen. He was like uh, in different places in history. In that movie, oh yes, yes, yes. Like we did a thing where we performed for the sequestered O.J. Simpson jury, right? Yeah. And then also we passed knives around John Wayne Bobbitt, who was first famous for his wife, you know, cutting off his penis. And yeah. So we tried to glom onto a few of those we moments. Of, we did a show for uh, Adnan Khashoggi, who was uh, at the time the international arms the world. dealer, sold arms to Reagan during the yeah, administration. Yeah. yeah, he was part of the Iran Contra or whatever that. Uh, or no, the arms for hostages. Mm-hmm. So we had kind of a. And how did you get that gig? Who phones your agent to get we, that no, one? We got that through a Renaissance Fair. Yeah, his That's daughter was at the Renaissance Fair. Nabilia. Yeah, Nabilia Khashoggi. She was in L.A. There and she goes, oh, you must come perform for my father in Spain. She goes, just come to Europe. Like, okay. Yeah. Here, my private secretary will call you tomorrow. We're like, okay. Okay, <laughs> drunk lady. <laughs> and then she did. And this is a great lesson. I mean, this is the number one lesson for anyone. If your airline tickets are about 2000 2500 yes. well, first class, right? Yes. Yeah, wait, first class. Don't charge a thousand for the I show. I think we charge fifteen hundred. We didn't want to That's blow it. That's a huge lesson. I had never said it before. We should charge it by times by four at least. Yeah, yeah. always charge your airline by four. Yeah, we didn't want to blow it. I think we just asked for like fifteen hundred. This was early. This was way before yeah. any TV. We, we went there. We did the show eventually. Well, I know when that was. That was eighty four. We went. Yeah, we, we actually performed in our tights and our Renaissance outfit. When we went there, so that's how early we were young, like nineteen. Right. We don't want to blow it. Like, oh, don't charge too much because then we'll lose this trip to Europe. Right. Because it was going to be either Spain or Greece or Africa. Yeah, there was Kenya. It was on the Kenya. chart. They didn't know where they'd be. Yeah, because you know, her father was going to have a birthday. Mm-hmm. But they had compounds in all these different places. It ended up being the Marbella, the Gold Coast of Spain. Marbella, Spain. Yeah. And, but we missed the big party because of our flights. They put us up in this hotel, Hotel del Golf, same one Sean Connery stays at because he was at the. He bar. was there. Yeah. He's like, pushy. Right. Pushy. Pushy. <laughs> I bet you. I was thinking, I bet he's getting more than a thousand bucks no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they just go, just go hang loose at the hotel. There'll come a time when maybe the family's together or something. We have a little party. We were like jugglers in a box, just waiting to pop yeah. out and do our little shenanigans. And, and eventually we did a show for like him and maybe eight or nine family members at their disco. It was good, like two or three in the morning. Yeah. And we pass knives around his kid, and we knock a cigarette out of someone else's mouth. And He's like, don't we have some jugglers standing by? Yeah. yeah no, that's just... a little thing in the disco tonight. It turned out to be from a big party to maybe nine people at three in the morning in a disco. Right. Yeah. Bonkers. And then what? The next morning you get on a plane and go home? No, no. They we say, got hey, to hang out for a few days. extra money. And they go, you know, what are you guys going to do? And we end up staying for Oh, yeah. We hung around Europe. A couple weeks. Just... We went to Berlin. We went to visit Karl-Heinz Yeah. You know, we, we had fun. 
Cool. Yeah, it was a fun trip. Bought hats from the, the driver. From the limo driver. <laughs> you know, there's a theme here. Shoot, there, <laughs> there is a theme. <laughs> yeah. We've always been able to sort of go between the worlds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we were serious professional jugglers. But we also didn't mind the hippie element. We didn't mind hanging. We didn't mind like being, you know, because yeah. we were just guys. We were never like the serious jockey, juggler, you know, like we're professional, you know. Yeah. We had the renegade spirit with the sort of professional. But we never picked up clubs with our toes. No. I think we never jumped barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> we had to draw a line. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's going to draw a line. Well, there's always somewhere. guys at conventions that pick up clubs with your toes, and I'm going, fuck, I don't want to grab that now, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's who knows what's yeah. going on in there? Toe jam. <laughs> So we did do some really sort of funny, interesting, historically kind of... Because we came up to such a nice time. You know, the 80s was the comedy boom. Mm-hmm. This whole opening act market, which vanished. Yep. Like 75% of our initial work after The Tonight Show was TV appearances and opening acts. Yeah. So we were really in show business at that point. Yeah. You know, like the... Well, who else did you open for? I mean, you oh, said Oh, Des my God. And uh, Robin Roseanne. Roseanne Barr. Dan Carvey. Jones. Patty LaBelle. Uh, yeah. Um, Paul Anka. Yeah. Uh, Dean Martin. Dean Martin. That was a weird one, because that was towards the end of his life, Dean yeah. Martin. They said, do not approach Dean Martin. Don't. But don't make eye contact with Dean but Martin. It was really cool. But he had lost his son uh, oh, in right. a plane crash, and he was already pretty... Uh, he was in the juice, huh? Well, he, he drank apple juice, but, but the years of whatever had left him pretty, like... Hey, everybody. You know, not sort of a shell of himself. I have this nice wall at my house I'll send you a photo of for the podcast. Oh, that, we used to get them all the pictures. Uh, yeah, I have, we, we'd always get people to sign clubs. They're all hanging on a wall in my house. Oh, cool. But, so, yeah. but the Paul Anka one had a good lesson because he, they said to us, they go, look, Paul Anka leaves his dressing room at 14 after the hour. He wants to be on the stage at 15 after. He doesn't want to break the stride. He wants to walk from his dressing room basically right onto the stage. Okay. So the most important thing for you, the, the most important thing is you're done here. If he's sitting in the wings waiting for you to end, you have not done your job. Something's going wrong. And casinos have the clocks built onto the stage. Sure, so you can see it counting down. Yep, so So we knew. We just just ended, and it was amazing. fortune after, we were like, okay, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. By the time the thing hit 15. It was perfect. That was their main focus, was that not be funny, da-da-da. No, he wants to walk from his dressing room. Onto the stage. Oh, we, one of my favorite opening acts though was Tom Jones. We got to oh, do yes. him for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we it did was so great there. though. He has such a repeat audience, oh. and these women love to sit in the exact same seat. So it was a comedy act. You're going out there, and they had, the band had names for everyone. Like yeah, you know, the lip. Yeah, the lip. <laughs> the lip. But I mean, the band had names for a hundred yeah, women in the come, audience. They come a lot, but they come every time. Every time, yeah. two shows a night sometime, and they're sitting right there. Definitely a core group that would come every. But you know, they would they would laugh. But some were like Japanese women and. But I remember during that show, that's where we made another change, was because we used to also still do this Apple and Carrot thing. And so we were doing our thing, and I'm watching, there's a big chunk of like Apple right there on the stage, you know, that we had left. Hmm. And we're like, well, if he strips on that chunk of Apple or whatever. Right, yeah. So I think after that, it also made the clubs really sticky. And, and yeah. So that was like one of the first routines we dropped out. Yeah, just cut that out. Yeah, and plus also the sharing of the Apple and the Carrot. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what he would do is he'd put the Carrot in his mouth. We wouldn't actually bite the piece off. So I'd grab it out I don't of his know mouth. that that's true. Just well, it's so totally true. Is it? Because I used to think, oh, you know, because if he had a good clean bite, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> but if I took it from his mouth and he hadn't had a clean bite, he just passed it back to me, yeah. Basically, I'm taking like his saliva covered <laughs> carrot piece. Sure, and putting it back in your mouth. And yeah. so that was one of the first routines that we had developed, and then we subsequently yeah. did not do. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the throwing it over the shoulder and catching it on the fork in, the, in my mouth hmm. was a really nice... Yeah, that was a ending. great ending. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that was disgusting. So you, you're touching on something there that obviously is a good topic for you guys, because 
I mean, a team act is like a marriage, right? Mm. I guess because it's like a relationship. Yeah, yeah it's not like my marriage. You're deeply attached to this person in a way that you know. It's a special relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's a, spe- it's a very. You know, there's definitely times where I've thought between the partnership and my marriage, I have these two really great. Yeah. Relationships. Right. But they're definitely different. But it's yeah, we've been, both been married a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's definitely been a very important yeah. relationship yeah. to me. Right. Is your voice changing, Mary? <laughs> a little longer. You want a little bit longer? God, I hate you. I hate you. I detest you. <laughs> If I couldn't make money with you, I'd leave you so quick. I call you at home, I call you the bread ticket. So I said, Carter, I call my house the house that dance voice bar. Ah, thank you very much. And you sort of said something in passing that you were involved in the introduction of... Oh, with his, my wife. Yeah, I had met his wife somewhere. I was uh, at uh, DNA. Yeah, there was a friend who was uh, had, had, had a business, stuff. and I I just had a knack for computers. I played with them since the beginning of time, and uh, he said, "Oh, can you network this thing for me?" So I went over, did that, and I was working for him a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, his wife was working in this office, and she had seen us doing TV shows. And I said, "Oh, you're like a female version of my partner." Her sense of humor. Yeah, and, she's and quirky. And he she was living in LA at the time. We were in San Francisco, and he was still living have, in LA. Uh, man boobs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. Okay. are a little bigger, but still. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he said, "Oh, he had the same sense of humor as my partner." You know, kind of. And she was like, "Oh, he must be with somebody." And I said, "No, no, not." And then you guys I, yeah, got together. Yeah, because I had had a serious relationship with the harpist. With a harpist, but that uh, you know had too many strings attached. Hey, <laughs> You know, we were all thinking it. It's sad he said it. No. <laughs> I missed thinking it. So, oh, I okay. yeah. uh, so now I've been married 17 years. Wow. And he had already moved up. So we, we're jumping a little ahead. But, so we did the Tonight Show thing. We did the opening act thing. We did the TV stuff. So that what year it was? Like, 90. This was, I've been married 17 years. Yeah. But he had he'd moved up out of L.A. He was the first to leave and decide L.A. sucks. I'm going to uh, San Francisco. So by the time he was up there, my mom was up there. My sister was up there. Now I meet this woman up there. Right. I'm like, oh, this is a pretty easy jump for me to move to the San Francisco area. Yeah. Right. And around that time, the corporate thing started to really develop, not just for us, but just in general. Mm-hmm. And people yeah. were getting a lot of money. There we got in early on that market, which was nice. Yeah. Like the, the 90s, where they were just like, the money was just like flying towards you. You must have a best and a worst. If something springs to mind, like, oh, that was the worst show we've ever had. I think the one for me that stands out is this one in Palm Springs. Oh, yeah. Where it was like this big, so we did these TEDs, and someone saw us there and invited us to do some charity event for some, you know, disease uh, prevention. Something uh, unpleasant. Something unpleasant. So that we get to this event in Palm Springs, and they have no time for us, and it's like they're really treating us poorly. We don't have our mics, and they're like, oh, no, no, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. And the party has started, and like, oh, no, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. All of a sudden, the guy gets up there, He's like, we got a couple guys with us, you know. This is just the worst intro ever. Did you say we were doctors? Yeah, so like, they're doctors. So just some just random sh- stuff he's saying about us. Let's bring them on. We, we don't have our mics on. Our stuff's just sort of sitting there. And we come up there, and it was just like the worst position to put us in. And tell and Wayne, who was sitting in the front row. Uh, Wayne Newton's like sitting in the front row. Oh, no. The front row staring just, at us. And everybody's just staring at us. And we, just, we start out so flat. Right. And we have to make two appearances. And then uh, oh, we come right. to the second appearance, and some guy goes, "Wow, your second appearance was much better than your first one." You know, they, they start giving us some static, like that first one wasn't very good. It was, it was. It was just, <laughs> I hate being put where they put as many roadblocks as possible in your way of doing a good job. Right. Then they complain that the job wasn't as good as they. <laughs> right. 
So that so I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but that sticks. His I mind. do remember that. That was hideous. I, and I remember not knowing Wayne Newton was there or not being aware, but then standing on stage and still trying to fuss with my mic and just seeing his big pompadour there. Yeah. And he had that show where he's like, "You are not the entertainer." Yes. And we're like, "Oh fuck!" But very rarely. Do I walk away feeling as if we weren't worth the money or we did a bad job? Yeah. Like I always say that we have a mulligan, meaning that if we ever have a show that just totally tanks, we deserve it. We get it. It was a freebie because we've done so many shows without ever really having. Like I read a lot of books about showbiz characters, and I was like, oh, I had this show where you know they, I bombed and they were so miserable. We, we generally really have done a really consistently good job. Mm. So to walk away from a gig thinking that we weren't worth the money was for me a very unique feeling and that I said it just stuck with me as one of the, yeah. the shows where I just really thought like wow yeah. people are going to walk away thinking that was not good yeah. right. and then a really high is uh, on the other side of that coin is and, and it gets grouped into one big show that's been 20 years it's just every corporate event where there's just beautiful production uh, the audience is primed where it's fun. we get we get killer introduction world class sound yeah. and we've done our customization stuff and we just go out and freaking rock the house I you love that go and kill I was, it I also love, love that. that I like the love president that. show too because we got to do a show for the president uh, which president Ray. it's so funny I was on a cruise ship recently as a solo and in my introduction I performed for the president and someone yells out what president and someone else yelled out Lincoln <laughs> it's such a great heckle and I'm like I can't top that. Yeah, yeah, Lincoln yeah. I'm, I'm performing for these people like, it wasn't the, the same theater as Lincoln it was it was the first theater yeah. but I remember because they had these big names like you know Golden Boys of Bandstand it was at Frankie Avalon or something yeah. they had Latoya Jackson Michael Feinstein but they also had some variety mixed in Shirley Jones and yeah. so we had our rehearsal and it was what didn't go well I remember it being like we were like stiff and it was kind of like you know, was, oh, and they had the Secret Service guys saying, you can't do that, you can't do it was just, It wasn't a good... Yeah. It, people even said like something like, you know, do we have to have the jugglers on the show? There was even a vibe like... Really? Yeah, I remember that. Wow. And the producer went to bat for us. I said, no, I know these guys. I've seen them. Even when there's an audience, they'll do it. And then to go in there and then in that moment do a flawless performance. The only downside is we had to use Harry Hamlin as our volunteer. Yeah. Total stiff. Right. But we, I felt, we killed. felt going in with this sort of feeling like, you know, wow, this could really go bad. And there's already people sort of thinking that we're bad. And actually to go in and be one of the high points of the show, that was one of my proudest moments. Mm. To be able to do the whole show and then look, because I didn't look at the president until we were all done. Because he was sitting in front row. Yeah. So to do the whole show and thought, wow, man, we pulled it off in this really stressful because sometimes like a kid can't even recently want to be a professional juggler because he likes to juggle. I go, you don't know what it's like to be on a live TV show or this big corporate thing where they're paying you a lot of money and there's all this sort of pressure to get your arms all you know tightened mm-hmm. up. And we were definitely feeling it at the rehearsal, but in that moment, mm-hmm. uh, that's the proudest I've been of us being able to overcome and deliver, you know, yeah. in the moment. Yeah, it was amazing. Right, and to see him sort of, you know. Laughing and really happy with and it. it, was a, it was a, and then we all stood up while he got up on stage. Yeah, he talk. did just talk about the arts, and then he came down, and that's when we had him sign our, our yeah. clubs. I remember thinking, God, the back of his pants are so wrinkly. Because <laughs> we were all standing behind him. Right. I also thought I could run forward and push him. <laughs> you know, to me, it always comes down to did I do a good job? You know, do I feel happy with the job I provided for the money they paid me? So for the worst moment, I didn't. You know, feel like we were worth it, even though they put us in that situation, and we did find the second half or whatever. And then the other one that was like where I felt like, wow, we really came through when the chips were against us because mm. it was a tough situation. There was already like a negative vibe, and we we did it. 
Our manager was at that show. Though. Oh, yes. And we were so funny. On the way home, we had first class. Yeah. But the first class wasn't good enough for him. So we actually got off the plane to wait for a later plane. He goes, this, this plane doesn't have good first class. He's like, no, there's a 747 leaving in two hours. Oh, wait. It's for like, okay. <laughs> well, this is fine. <laughs> I'm not going to wait for a better first class. But that was kind of his thing. Yeah. Wow. You like the perks. Yeah, I guess so. I like the performing. He liked the perks. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and I liked the money. I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. Because you know, we knew what it was like to work. Yeah, you know, like I was a fry cook. I was making like 117. dollars I still think about this. I was making 117 dollars a week for working a full. Yeah, and I worked like two or three in the morning because it was like a late night place. Yeah, so I drive my bike home at like three yeah. in the morning. Or, and I was uh, at my son's age, eleven. I was stealing my own food and clothes to go to school. You know, and I did not want that to go on. So when I saw this way to make money, I was like, man, I'm going to study that like Einstein. Right. And so what did you then start devoting all your time to getting those corporate gigs? Yeah, because well, we did a show and he yeah. sort of thought... We had that manager and he yes. somehow got us into this four-day emceeing for this thrifty drug conference. You know, we were still in tights. We had done the Tonight Show. This is, yeah, this is kind of a We had done thing, some... Yeah. yeah, that's right. We had done some uh, opening yeah. acts. This was, we were already pretty established, but we weren't really making... The, the, you know, we were at what we would call the Joe Gunch's work program, which was like a good gig and then like three or four weeks off and then another opening act gig and then three or four weeks off. His so, whole focus was celebrity. Which was smart because his, his idea was get them associated with celebrities, get them on TV and try to make them like sitcom stars or something. Yeah, right. But not realizing that we really weren't actors. We really didn't have the right tools to do that. But it did set us up really well in the, when, you, when you put your reel together to get into corporates. So he didn't know how to translate what he was doing for us really into the work ethic necessary to then market it to colleges and corporates. And we realized he didn't really have the work ethic. You know, you taste something. We had tasted a corporate show. Yeah. And it's all I cared about. I was like, wow, the money there, the ease, the fun, the, the focus. Everyone's there for this common denominator. It was great for comedy. And Joe was like, let's get some more celebrity. And I was like, I was so done with that. So but also, he just wasn't following through on shit. Like one time I remember telling him something. And I go, hey, did you ever follow through that? Because you said it was a good idea. He goes, I said it was a good idea. I didn't say I was going to follow through on it. <laughs> and he didn't have a support staff. If he had had like a, a secretary and a, you know, someone doing the mailings, he wanted to answer the phone. He wanted to, he wanted to hang out with celebrities. Phase. Yeah, he loved the phase and celebrities. He loved coming with us, which was also weird. Like we did some shows where we were the only ones with our manager there. Right. Like we did this big uh, show in uh, San Padre Island with all these other comics. You had like Don Herrera, Charles Flesher, George Wallace, Paul, George Wallace, Paul Reiser, some big, big guys. And then here we are with our manager, like only, you know, right? Like you're some kind of kid. So, but yeah. so we realized at that point that, that the hanging out and being part of the scene was really sort of more important to him than the the backbone of sending out 300 packages and the stuff that you really need to do to then translate the whatever celebrity or credentials you have into actually making money. Right. Yeah. He believed that if you know we built the path, people would come, and that it's still not the way mm-hmm. in marketing acts. You have to be out there in front of the clients. and yeah, right. Getting those credentials, you know, getting the TV spots. That was great. Yeah. It really did then set Very you good. up. So you know, he helped us to get to that point, but uh, he just didn't know how to translate it into actual business. Right. Good guy, though. We still, I'm still in touch with him. And so you know handle that yourself? Or? You know, over the years, I think we did most of it ourselves. Occasionally, we but would we be with someone. He means, means Barry. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was I, mean, I helped it, like, if we had to put a video together, we had to write some copy. Or, or right. you know. if envelopes need to be licked. But there right. has to be, <laughs> yes. There has to be some point, man, to work. And it worked really well that way. I love doing that. It, I got really excited by the business. I, I mean, my, I make this joke that, like, my... Uh, 
happiness about a booking came when we got the contract, and you know, then there was this other celebration after the show. Right. And he was good at asking for money. I've always been like, one hundred fifty dollars. I'm there. Yeah. So sometimes he'd go, "Yeah, we're getting this much." I'd be like, "I could never ask for that." I yeah, we're doing this race over to twenty five thousand for a couple of days, and it, it, and then, I was like, "How?" The fuck? I go, "Maybe just ask for ten. Yeah. Or whatever. Call <laughs> them back. How does that word even come out of your mouth? Twenty five thousand. I'm so like, I always said though that if, yeah. if he ever asked for money or too much, and that we didn't get the gig, I would never bust his balls because I'm like, there's plenty of times where it does work out. You yeah. Know? So I'm not doing the work. So that was definitely became his focus, and now he's translated that into. Helping others do the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and is the writing split up? Because I mean, so much of that stuff is just back and forth. I think that's probably more in my division then. Right. Yeah. That was sort of more like my before, responsibility. Before corporate shows, we have this questionnaire that people fill out, and then Dan will like go and sit with it quietly and work out some things, and then like right before the show, we'll spend like 15 minutes just busting yeah, up some jokes he wrote. Yeah, I'd basically meet with the client, get the information, formate some jokes. But then once I had a bunch of jokes, you know, would go to Barry, and, and he was perfectly fine of saying, "Well, not this one, <laughs> you know, not right. that one." And so that was speaking my the customizing the the show comedically, and also generating a good portion of the juggling based ideas because I'm more of a a juggler. I'm definitely right. more of a guy interested in juggling. At a certain point, I think Barry's passion for the juggling, maybe not the performing, right. but the juggling itself. Dan juggles even when you don't have shows. I still juggle every day for an hour a day, just for my own personal pleasure. Right. Yeah. So I still love the. the yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, that's crazy just to think of you know thirty five years or thirty one. Well, I'm juggling at thirty seven. Yeah. Thirty seven years I've been juggling. Wow. Right. Nice. Yeah. I can still get that jolt out of it. It's really great. Well, but I pick and choose now. Yeah. I mean, I, I let a lot of things go. I don't do five clubs. I don't do seven balls. I don't do anything that I don't want to do. Yeah. I really like tennis ball and camp because it's light. I always say that for me, the juggling is a vehicle to express my creativity. Mm. So I just love making up tricks and, and just thinking, what if it goes this way? Mm-hmm. What if it happened like this? And that, that mind process. Of, mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of where I'm going in my direction in my life is now trying to express myself creatively through other means. Right. So that's where I'm going to go in, in my future in the second half of my... Right. And what are you doing with your hour while he's playing with tennis balls? Oh, man. He's got so many business. Yeah, I have so many projects I work on. It's funny to come to a thing like this. It was like put all these things on hold. And right. my son, I have an 11-year-old I just love playing with. And yeah, River He's got quite a great business. I mean, uh, the, anybody who's listening should check out his... Uh, yeah, I have the yeah, number of online programs. Plug it. Getmorecorporategigs.com, showbizblueprint.com. I teach entertainers all over the world different methods for booking better shows. And you can find me at naughtycheerleader.com. <laughs> yes. And that's N A U G H. That's my pay site. <laughs> so if you're tired of trying to improve your act, if you're just giving up. Life's constant drip of disappointment. The constant drizzle, yes. <laughs> is that your line? What is it? Yeah. The constant drizzle of life's disappointment. led you to the point where you need the naughty <laughs> They're dead inside. <laughs> Look at them. If you want to do better, go to Barry if you want the naughty cheerleader. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, the Raspini Brothers has been 2013 July. This will make 31 years. And, yeah. and it's a long road. And we came into it as you know we've talked about in such a good time. There was so many good possibilities. Well, we were always the youngest guys. We were always like at these fairs. They were like a little like you can start or sing executioners or whatever. They were always like five or six years older than us. So we were always like kids. And now we look at the group we're with now. Somehow we've gone from the youngest to like the oldest. Hmm. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's the yeah. cycle of life. And uh, there's yeah. a lot to do in life. And there's uh, other marks I want to leave on the world. I feel like this mark has been really well left. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there's a redundancy to your experience, uh, you know, in this market or any market, where you know you, you sort of repeat the same experiences a lot, 
and so I think at a certain point you're like, okay, maybe I'm getting less and less out of this just simply because, you know, it's like seeing a show. Like if you've seen tons of circus shows, you go to see a circus, you're like, you're just a little jaded by it. Right. Because you've just seen so many. It has to be something really special to stand out. That's sort of what we search for now are these special things that stand out. Like this Edmonton experience is a special experience that stands mm -hmm. out. So it's hard to be jaded when you're doing something so different. Yeah. So to apply to another corporate gig, it's just like, oh, now it's a different company. Maybe there's some variables that are different. Right. It's not much different. Pretty, but I had this really eye-opening experience. I was heading up my driveway. I live in the Sierra Mountains, not around anybody. But I drive up this long driveway to leave my house. And I thought, I know everything that's going to happen for the next two and a half days. And once yeah, that, it was like this pill. And once I took it, I couldn't get that taste out of my mouth, even if I tried. I mean, I was like, this taste isn't going away. And that was when I got into the place where my brain went, we have to make something new happen. And we, everyone who's listening to this has had that. That's why they're a juggler, magician, performer, yeah. whoever, because they've had that taste. They want to create something. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, that taste would not go away. And next few times I drove up the driveway, I was like, oh my God, I'm still doing it. So it's a good motivation. That's great. Yeah. And you're not stuck even if you're successful or you're getting good money. It doesn't mean that's all you're meant to do or meant to be. You know, It's not like you have to do that or be stuck like, oh, this is the one path. Sometimes you need to step off the path a little bit. Taste that damn pill. Taste the so, pill. Taste it. Yeah. Take the red pill. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Do you want to leave it there? Are you guys happy so with that? A, yeah. I could talk enough. forever, guys. I mean, Any last questions? How about last? So you're nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> you're staying up late to watch the rest of the and now you're here with the recipes. Everything you dreamed of. Everything and more. <laughs> Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. This episode is proudly sponsored by the Lawrence Busker Festival. Going into its eighth year, the Lawrence Busker Festival in Lawrence, Kansas, is one of the largest gatherings of street performers in the United States. The 2015 festival runs May 29th through 31st, and as it says on their website, it's three days of family fun with some of the most talented freaks, geeks, artists, and musicians around. Find out more about the festival at lawrencebuskerfest.com, and huge thanks to them for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the Donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in stories from the pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. Huge thanks to Raspini brother Barry Friedman, who also provided a ton of images and additional commentary to go along with this episode. You can find shots from various points along the Raspini's career dating all the way back to the Renfair days, along with all the other images mentioned in the context of this podcast. Just point your favorite browser to buskerhalloffame.com and check out the notes section for this episode. 
And just before wrapping things up, we wanted to share a moment that was contemplated but never realized for the Raspini brothers' second appearance on The Tonight Show. What's the worst that could happen? We hit him with a knife. We thought, God, if we hit Johnny with a knife, we would be huge. Maybe that would be the best thing that could happen. Yeah, right, yeah. we, we actually talked about it. What story that would be. So we thought, there's really no, you know... But then we didn't. We didn't. Yeah, no, of course. Pushed out. Yeah, yeah, chose against it. You know, that's not going to work. Fun to watch that, though, knowing that was kind oh of God, ticking through our heads. Oh, my God. hit him with the knife, and it'd be like... Uh, the jugglers who hit the Johnny Carson with a knife are now the world's most famous jugglers. <laughs> it's like getting like famous for a uh, sex tape. Yeah, yeah. Famous exactly. for being famous. And that goes very fast. And he's yeah. like, oop, oh, me back yeah. down again. On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Associate Producer Magic Bryan, Mike Wood, who both captured this interview and provided the prologue, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. The money's there and we're there. Let's leave together. Yeah.